Thanks, Leon and Phil. This is not a, uh, an easy chapter, both uh, in terms of um, understanding it and all the nuances of it, but also because it is quite a strong word. And I think as we continue to go through First and Second Corinthians, we'll find that uh, it continues to be a, a strong and confronting word. The fact that Paul's taking so much time at the beginning of his letter to labour his point that Christ crucified is the only foundation for our church and for our lives highlights how important this issue is. You might feel that the last few Sundays have felt maybe a bit repetitive because it's the same thing that Paul is talking about. But we can't hear too many times how central the cross is to our faith and to our lives. We cannot hear enough how Christ and him crucified should shape and define every aspect of our identity and our life. So let's, let's pray as we come to this chapter. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you continue to speak today through your word and we ask that as we We look at these words, uh, words on a page that we might see uh, in them and behind them, your living word to us. Uh, We ask that you'll give us hearts that are open to receive what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Now up to this point, Paul has been addressing our our propensity to boast in men. As he said in 3 verse 21, so let no one boast in men and the application has been that we should never put our leaders even if they are great apostles up on a pedestal but in all of that Paul has been leading to this point where he addresses not not just the matter of how we view our leaders and our teachers but how we view ourselves When he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, it means that what Paul has said about himself and Apollos and Cephas and all the apostles should be a model for how everyone views themselves. Paul and Apollos, he says, are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this word servant, he doesn't use either of the standard words in Greek for servant here, but he uses the word from which I got the children's talk that means literally an under oarsman. Someone who sits in the belly of the ship and just rows and rows. What he's saying is, Christ is the captain of the ship. I just pull the oars at his command. And then he uses the word steward. A a modern version, or maybe not so modern anymore version of that would be butler. The steward was the manager of a household, of their money and resources but they weren't the owner of the house. 
God is the owner of the household. I just look after the resources that he's entrusted to me, is what he's saying. And so ultimately he says, my accountability is to God. It is the Lord who judges me. Now that's not a cop-out to not be accountable. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's an assurance that if a Christian leader does step out of line, God sees it and he will bring them to account. Us Christian leaders should be always conscious that everything we do is before the face of God. He sees everything we do in secret. He sees even the secret intentions and motives of the heart. Whatever facade we might try and put up is completely transparent to him. So be assured, any leader in the church who abuses their position will be brought to account by God. But there's a direct relationship between these two problems of how we view our leaders and how we view ourselves. Because lifting up our leaders and giving them a high status is saying, well, here is a human being who, because of their own maturity, their own spirituality, has reached this place where they're a celebrity who is worthy of my praise. And so it's only a tiny jump to go from there to thinking, well, if it's achievable for that mere human being, then it's achievable for me as well. In fact, that's what was being taught by the pagan religions that the Corinthians had come out of. This spirituality was something that everyone should aspire to. Uh, Enlightened masters and guides are there to show us what we too can become if we apply ourselves, if we climb that spiritual ladder as they have. Now that's how people then gained control over their followers and it's the way that people can do it today. They set a spiritual benchmark, something to reach and something that they boast that they themselves have achieved and they tell us that if we do well, if we work hard then we too can get to that benchmark but it's always set just a little bit higher than where we're at, a little bit above our reach. So no matter how hard we try, we'll always fall short of their standard. So because we don't have maybe the same experience of dreams and visions or the same frequency of personal conversations back and forth with God or because we don't have the same depth of revelation into the mysteries of the universe, that spiritual leader is always able to make us feel less mature, less spiritual than them. So we'll be driven ultimately by guilt and by shame. If we haven't reached their level, we must not have enough faith. We must not be committed enough. We haven't earned enough favour with God. Whatever it may be, it's our fault. So we need to do more. We need to devote ourselves more. We need to give more. Now that's what today 
has come to be called spiritual abuse. As in all types of abuse, it's about me making myself greater than you, exercising control over you, exploiting you for my own gain, whether that's financial gain or just my own ego. We might think that this kind of spiritual abuse would be easy to spot, so we're then unlikely to fall under the power of a spiritual abuser. However, the techniques that Paul uh, talks about earlier in this chapter of, uh, sorry, in chapter 1 of lofty speech and plausible words can be very clever. They appeal to our desire to be great, to be recognised and applauded, to be celebrated just like our celebrities. They draw us in by telling us to have an inflated view of ourselves. They always speak us up. They boost our egos by telling us that we're already great. We just have to recognise our greatness to to actualise the potential that's within us. One of the most listened to celebrity pastors at the moment wrote in one of his New York Times best-selling books these words, When you declare favour over your life and over your future, God will make things happen that should never, have never happened. Our attitude should be, I'm coming out of debt and I'm staying and I'm saying so. This will be my best year and I'm saying so. I will overcome every obstacle and I'm saying so. I will accomplish my dreams and I'm saying so. Shake off the negative things people have said about you. Shake off the low self-esteem and the inferiority and start carrying yourself like a princess. Start walking like a princess. Start talking like a princess. Start thinking like a princess. Start waving like a princess. He's referring there to the book of Esther. Uh, where Esther was made a princess and she had to recognise that greatness. Now these are the kinds of words that we love to hear about ourselves, aren't they? They tell us we have intrinsic greatness. We simply have to rise up to it. It shouldn't surprise us that this pastor has the largest church in America. He lives in a $10 million mansion and his net worth is estimated at $100 million because his followers are putty in his hands. They're told that they can become wealthy and successful and happy like him if only they have as much faith as him and give money to his ministry. So on the outside it looks spectacular, it looks like gold and silver and precious stones but in reality it's just wood, hay and straw. It sounds like he's enabling people to put their faith in God, when in reality their faith is in him and in this inflated view of themselves. This name it, claim it thinking, uh, where I think I'm greater than I really am, isn't just a modern phenomenon though. It was used even in the ancient world. There were some Greek philosophers 
called Stoics and they took their ideas from another group of philosophers who were called Cynics. These philosophers believe the most important thing in life is virtue. They'd often shun regular society. They'd uh, sometimes even deliberately choose a path that involved hardship as a way of publicly signalling their virtue. So people will look at them and say, what a great virtuous person they are. That's why Stoic has come to describe someone who endures hardship without showing any emotion or complaining because they are strong within themselves to handle it. And it's why cynic or cynical has come to mean judging other people's motives as being unvirtuous, as being driven by uh, selfishness. Here's what a, a Roman writer said around the same time, a little bit before Paul, when he was explaining the views, particularly of the Stoics. He says, those endowed with virtue alone are rich, for they alone possess property that both produces profit and lasts forever, and they alone have the special characteristic of wealth, contentment with what is theirs. They think What they have got is enough and seek for nothing more. They want nothing. They think that they lack nothing and need nothing. See how that's similar language to what Paul is using here in verse 8. Paul is parodying this approach. He's not saying this is true, he's actually uh, reflecting on what he's been hearing from the way the Corinthians are speaking. We have what we want, we're rich, we're kings. They'd been deceived into thinking that if they spoke this way about themselves, they would become great, just like their spiritual leaders. Now you may be thinking, hang on, isn't that true? Isn't it a biblical principle that even if we lose the whole world and have Christ, then we're still truly rich? Didn't Jesus tell us to shun worldly wealth and to seek after heavenly treasure instead? Aren't we supposed to to know our, our identity as sons of God who are reigning with Christ? Well, the subtle but big difference between what these people in the ancient world and today said and what the Bible says is this it's not my own virtue that makes me truly rich it's not my own strength that enables me to endure suffering it's not my inner potential it's not my intrinsic value that makes me wise or mature If I am any of these things, it's purely by grace. What do you have that you did not receive? He says in verse 7. Nothing is of ourselves. Our riches are the riches of Christ. 
Our status in God's kingdom comes only because we share in his victory. Our strength to endure flows from Christ who endured the cross. Any honour we receive from God is only because we've been adopted as his sons and daughters. The message of the cross turns the worldly system upside down. To aspire to be like the apostles isn't to take a step up, it's to take a step down. It's not to go up to honour and glory, but down to service and suffering. When a Roman general returned victorious from the battle, there'd be a parade through the streets of the city, normally Rome. In that parade, first would come the defeated kings and generals. They might be stripped naked. Sometimes they'd have their eyes poked out. They'd be dragged in chains and the crowd would would boo them and maybe throw rotten fruits and stones at them. Then would come the spoils of war, all the treasure, the booty that has been captured and uh, those who had been captured and brought back to Rome to become slaves. And then at the end of the procession would come the victorious general himself riding his chariot and leading his victorious soldiers and then the people would cheer and throw flowers and sing the praises of Rome. I'm guessing that that model's been carried over somehow into our modern culture uh, in that Santa comes at the end of the Christmas pageant because apparently he's the most important figure of Christmas so he comes at the end. So it's a little ironic, isn't it, that in the Norwood Christmas pageant, the ones who go first are the Christians. Well, Paul is invoking this image here in verse 9. God has exhibited us apostles like men sentenced to death. We are the, the kings and generals with our eyes poked out who are being booed and who are going to end up being publicly disgraced and executed. But see how he's reversed the order of the procession. They are last of all, not first. The place of honour is not given to the high and mighty, but to the disgraced and the lowly. If the gospel is supposed to make you great as the world defines greatness, then Why is it that the apostles who have dedicated their lives to the gospel are held in disrepute? They go hungry, thirsty and poorly dressed. They are buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted and slandered. So why is it that those whom Jesus entrusted with his gospel are called the scum of the world and the refuse of all things, as Paul describes himself. If God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, why do we think there's merit 
in being great in the eyes of the world. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it's not the world, but it is God who has placed honour on the apostles. He's made them an exhibit. I suspect that we all share to some degree the same fear that one day the world might triumph over the church, that Christians will be pushed further and further to the margins, maybe eventually opposed and persecuted. But our fear should actually be the opposite, that we will become accepted and honoured that we might be given power and influence in society or in politics, that we might be looked up to by the world instead of looked down upon. Why should we desire to strive for acceptance and honour from the world when God makes it clear that his favour is upon those who are despised and rejected by the world? Do we really desire to be like Jesus? Do we really desire to share in his suffering so that we might share in his resurrection? Or do we want glory without the cross? There was no glory for Jesus without the suffering and the shame of the cross. So why do we presume to be above him? Hebrews 13 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, this is a hard word for us to accept. We live comfortable and affluent lives. We live in a country that's still generally friendly towards the church and to Christians. And maybe we think that our comfort is God's way of blessing us because he approves of us or because we deserve it. Affluence can actually be part of his judgment on a society where he gives us over to our materialism, to our devotion, to our idols of wood and stone and metal and plastic and silicon. Paul says in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. The desire to emulate our leaders is a good thing. So it was good in a sense that the Corinthians said, let's look to someone that we can emulate, that we can seek to be like. Christian leaders are told to set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We're warned that Christian leaders and teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ in in chapter 11 verse 1. He's not saying that I'm the perfect example. But he's saying, if if at any point you see something of Christ in me, then imitate that. 
But notice how Paul wants to move away from the model of teacher-student, the way it was set up in the world. He wants to go from teacher-student to father-child. A student can imitate their teacher by replicating their actions, by parroting their words. They don't even have to have met their teacher in order to imitate them. But Paul doesn't want to be seen merely as a teacher, but their father. He wants their motivation for imitating him to be relational, for them to obey because of love, not because of obligation. And that's why he sent Timothy to them. See how he calls Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy was a walking, talking example of this relational discipleship that Paul did. There were many people that Paul could have sent who had apostolic authority to straighten them out. But Timothy was the one who would come and would speak from personal experience of knowing Paul as that father figure. Paul doesn't want to come with a rod. He wants to come with a spirit of gentleness. Well, to see what it means to imitate Paul, we actually need to go back to verse 6. The first thing to see and imitate, to learn from Apollos and Paul, is he says to not go beyond what is written. Now, without exception... Whenever Paul uses that phrase, what is written, he's referring to the scriptures. And we can take that as a general principle. The scriptures are the rule of faith. They're the the final authority. We don't need, and we shouldn't think that we need to look to some other source for our knowledge of God or the gospel or knowing his will for our lives. But he's also been specific here because he's already referred directly to the scriptures six times and five of them he introduces with the words as it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart so that's from Isaiah 29:14 but the one who boasts boasts in the Lord from Jeremiah 9:23 to 24 What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's from Isaiah 64 verse 4. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? From Isaiah 40, 13. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job 5, 13. And then the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That's from Psalm 94.11. So right through from chapter 1 verse 19 through to 3 verse 20, Paul keeps saying, for it is written, it is written, it is written. And Paul's taken the truth of these scriptures and he's fleshed out what it means for himself and the other apostles as they go about their ministry. But these scriptures are true not just for the apostles, but for anyone who takes the name of Christ. 
They call us to humbly receive the wisdom of God manifested in the cross of Christ and to not presume to know anything about him other than what has been given to us, revealed to us in the words of the scriptures. See, coming to the scriptures forces us to operate as equals. We all come to God's word. We are all utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give us an understanding of what's written. The preacher needs the Spirit just as much as the listener. If I come to you and claim that I've received a direct revelation from God or a prophecy or a vision or anything that I claim to be in addition to the Scriptures or maybe some new insight into mysteries that no one has ever seen for the last 2,000 years of people diligently studying the Scriptures. If I did that, I'd be setting myself up above you. I'd be putting the focus on me and my spiritual abilities. But if all I can do is expound the Scriptures using whatever gifts and calling God's given me, then we're all together sitting under the authority of God in his word. That's one reason why we nearly always do expository preaching here at Bethel, meaning we work our way through books and passages rather than thematic sermons. We want to submit together to the scriptures to hear what they say, to let them set the agenda for what we hear rather than cherry-picking topics that I might have a preference for. It means that anything that's said from the pulpit can also be measured against the Scriptures. I can't stand up here and say the Bible says something if the passage up on the screen says something completely different. This leads then to the second thing to see and imitate in Paul and Apollos. The thing that he's been emphasising all the way through these chapters that none of us are better than others but simply co-workers. As he said, he who plants and he who waters are one. Any results that come from ministry is from God who brings the growth. And he, he brings this out in these three questions a who question, a what question and a why question. Who sees anything different in you? In other words, if anyone looking at us all on face value can see that we're just people. None of us is better than another. There's no place for anyone to claim a higher level of spirituality than anyone else. What do you have that you did not receive? If there is anything that makes you different from another, that stops us from just being a homogenous blob of everyone being exactly the same, well that's only because of the different gifts that we've received from God. So if anyone should get credit, it's God. In Greek culture, 
someone could be called gifted in the sense that it's often used today, that they have some special ability or intelligence or advantage that sets them apart from normal people. Biblically, gift is the same word as grace. It speaks of receiving something that's from outside ourselves that we neither possess ourselves or deserve apart from God's ongoing generosity. So thirdly, he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If we live by grace in which we all in all that we have is a good gift from the Father, then no one can boast. No one can take credit for anything and so God gets all the glory. One final thing to say. This view of the body of Christ where we are all equals under God and his word, where we are all equally recipients of God's grace That doesn't mean that we have no need of structures or leadership or authority or accountability. As we've seen, Paul wants to come, not sure if it's there, he wants to come in love and gentleness, not with a rod. But he's aware that there may be the need for him to come with a rod for him to exercise authority as an apostle to sort out some of these problems in the church and to deal with some of the problem people. The next couple of chapters, uh, if this was hard to navigate, the next few chapters will also be difficult ones to navigate because they deal with matters of church discipline and dealing with disputes amongst Christians. We'll find ourselves confronted, challenged, maybe stirred up in ourselves as we see that the grace of God doesn't rule out the righteousness of God. Grace and righteousness aren't opposites or mutually exclusive things. Grace is needed because we fail in our righteousness, but righteousness is the expected fruit of grace. So we'll be brought face to face with the ways that unbiblical and sinful thinking and living will always be creeping into the church. How easily it can be to slide into behaviours that are unloving and dishonouring to God and to one another. We'll also see the reality of the battle, our own battle with our personal sinfulness. So, brace yourselves. Because the church belongs to God, he doesn't hold back in disciplining us. Why? Because he is the father who loves his children. He desires to bring us to maturity in the likeness of his son. Let's pray.